This week on the New York Public Library podcast, noted legal reformer Philip K. Howard discusses his latest work, The Rule of Nobody, Saving America from Dead Laws and Broken Government. John Stewart describes Howard as an eminently reasonable, articulate advocate for common sense solutions, adding, no wonder no one listens to him. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org and subscribe on iTunes to never miss an episode. Welcome to Books at Noon. I'm Jessica Strand. I am the Associate Director of Public Programs and Events at the New York Public Library. Today, I'm going to actually read this intro because I don't want to forget much. I try to memorize them usually. So uh, today we have Philip K. Howard, who's a lawyer and a writer. He's also the founder of uh, Common Good, a nonpartisan nonprofit legal reform coalition proposing an overhaul of America's law and government. He's also the author of three books, and I'm going to actually shorten the titles a bit. The Death of Common Sense, The Collapse of, Co- of Common Good, Life Without Lawyers, and most recently, The Rule of Nobody, which we will talk about today. Please welcome Philip K. Howard. Hi. You're surprised that we're in the middle of Astor Hall. I am surprised, <laughs> yes. I, uh, anyway, <clears throat> may you survive this. <laughs> so. I'm going to just dive right into the book. In the rule of nobody, you state that we're headed toward a stall and then a frightening plummet toward insolvency and political chaos, which is... Uh, <laughs> it's cheery. It's good news. Yeah, it's cheery, of- it's good news, and it's, I mean, it's very direct. So I want you to just explain that to the audience so they really understand, you know, the, the uh, gist uh, of the book. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, it, it isn't a book just to live it up while you can, although maybe that's one implication. Um, what I argue in the book is that uh, with, almost without our knowing it, over the noticing in the last 50 years, law and regulation have piled up um, al- almost always for good purposes in such a way and with such granularity that it's increasingly difficult to do anything. Teachers can't maintain order in the classroom. The president can't. Um, build new infrastructure. It takes eight or ten years for the President of the United States to get approval. We can't balance budgets because the budgets are set in legal concrete and most of the budgets don't even go to Congress for reauthorization. So you have this, it's, it's, U.S. now ranks 20th in the world in ease of starting a business. Um, I worked with Clinton and Gore on reinventing government 20 years ago. It is much worse now than it was then. It's much harder to do anything much harder if you're a government official to, to make a sensible decision and get something done. Uh, it's harder for business. It's harder for everyone. And it's going to be worse in five years. What, how, did, how did we get here? I mean, I think that's the... We, we had this idea, well, there are two structural flaws, uh, I argue, but the, the more recent one is that we woke up to all these abuses in the 1960s, uh, bad values, racism, gender discrimination, pollution, uh, locking disabled children in horrible places like Willowbrook, and, and we decided to change our legal system uh, on the idea that we should avoid bad values by making law as precise as possible and tell everybody how to do everything. In the old days, the law was more like the Constitution. It had goals and principles, no unreasonable searches and seizures, the First Amendment, things like that. Now law is literally thousands of pages. 
there's a new rule for Dodd-Frank called the Dodd, the Volcker rule, just to implement one part of this financial regulation that's 950 pages long. The Constitution's 10 pages long. I mean, it's, it's literally, it's, it's almost like it's a form of a manic behavior. Is it also <laughs> that we become a litigious society? I mean, that we, that not only do we have too many laws, but we also find it really easy to sue each other. And I mean, it, that it's, it, it's easy to find little pitfalls in all well, these well, things. They're actually related to each other because the quest to make law as precise as possible so that no one will ever make a mistake, right, right. which ends up with this system of central planning so nobody can do anything good, uh, is also the same instinct that tells judges that they no longer can assert norms of reasonableness right. and they let anyone sue for anything. That wasn't true 50 years ago. Today the idea is if you feel upset by something in the workplace or, or your child has an accident on the playground, you have a right to sue. Well, not unless somebody did something wrong in accord with you know, legal norms. It's called a lawsuit, not a go-for-anything-you-want suit. Right, right, but, right, right. But, but, but nobody's actually asserting those norms. And the harm of that is not that juries, if it goes that far, generally do the wrong thing. The harm of this kind of sue-for-anything idea is that the whole culture is now washed over with this wave of defensiveness. Teachers won't put an arm around a crying child. There's nothing left that's any fun for a kid to play on. There's no seesaws, merry-go-rounds, climbing ropes, jungle gyms, you name it. Because all of those things not only involve the risk, but the certainty that from time to time a child will get hurt. They also involve the certainty that you teach children how to take responsibility for themselves and you attract them because it's sure. fun to test yourself and, and it's, it's one of the reasons we have a crisis of, of obesity. It's because it, we don't have anything fun for the kids to go out and do anymore. <laughs> or eat, right. So tell me, um, you, in the book, you, uh, you really have these incredible anecdotes which support, I mean, this sort of crazy right. laws and so much red tape and that things just don't get done. And if, they were, if it was, were streamlined in some way, right. you could cut months, years off. And, and, and the stories are remarkable. Yeah, the story. So, so I lead off the book with this a really simple little story. A tree falls in a creek in Franklin Township, New Jersey. It causes flooding in a winter storm. The town father sent in a backhoe to pull it out. Then the town lawyer says, oh no, that's a class C1 creek. You know, whatever that is. And in order to remove a natural obstacle, a fallen tree, you have to get legal approval. It takes them about two weeks and $12,000 in legal fees to get approval to do, do what's completely obvious, which is to pull the tree out of the creek. Now, that's just an anecdote, right? So you go to uh, the stimulus plan in 2009 when President Obama, with bipartisan support, got $800 billion from Congress. And remember, he was going to use that money to rebuild America's decrepit infrastructure. Really important thing to do, because the infrastructure, we're living on our grandparents' and great-grandparents' infrastructure, 100-year-old water pipes, bridges built you know, decades ago and such. They came out with a five-year report on how they spent the money. And in the back of the this just a few months ago, in, in, in the back of the report is this number. Barely 3% of the money got spent to rebuild America's transportation infrastructure. You say, well, how could that be? 
And the reason is the President of the United States, duly elected by a majority of Americans, lacks the authority to make the most obvious choices to rebuild infrastructure. We're not talking about highways through virgin forests. We're talking about just, just, re yeah, just yeah. rebuilding what's there. It's literally, so this, this giant legal blob has come under the doorways and come into our lives and schools and the White House and the schoolhouse and the courthouse, you know, well, in every house. I mean, I mean, those those are absurd. But there is like, what was there was uh, an anecdote about a ladder, like something about uh, in schools and a ladder. There were there were like ten pages on oh, yeah. the so, dangers of oh, a yeah, ladder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, just to see the ridiculousness. I mean, of, if if you go into the into the legal regulations, so one of the things I argue is the problem with regulation is not what conservatives say. I actually think we need more government oversight in a, in an anonymous globalized world. Than, than we did years ago. Because you don't want the toys to have lead paint on them. You, you're putting loved ones in the care of people in nursing homes and daycare centers you don't know. Exactly. So, so you yeah. want them to be competent and good. So I think the role of government's actually really important. But if you look in the regulations, like the worker safety regulations, literally you'll have 10 pages on the specifications for wooden ladders. Right, rather than I mean, the real stuff. almost all of those thousands of rules could be replaced by one principle. Tools and equipment shall be reasonably suited for the use intended in accord with industry standards. And what that would allow a workplace to do is if you're, if you're just hanging a picture in the president's office here, you don't need a sturdy ladder because you're just going up a step or two. And if you're on a construction site, you need a construction-heavy ladder that's, that's safe and equipped. And let people use those judgments and let regulators also use their judgment in distinguishing between the two situations. Instead, we have this kind of one-size-fits-all, lowest common denominator regulatory system that every day results in constant absurdities, like, like shutting down children's lemonade stands because they don't have a vendor's license. No, it's... <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. So, I mean, the question is, where do we begin? I mean, are... I mean, as you say, the infrastructure, we're living on our grandparents, great-grandparents' infrastructure. We have a constitution that's 227 years right. old. Where do we need to... I mean, we're married to our constitution. I, in yeah, many yeah, ways, you know, we, we amend it. Is, it. is it time to retool it? Is it time? How do we get to the place where we can? It sounds so simple when you say, look, <laughs> the 10 pages can re right. be reduced, really, to one sentence, right. two sentences that explain right. heavy equipment or wooden equipment in any, sort of right. in, in, in any open area where people could get hurt. So how do we look at government differently and retool it? I mean, how, where do we well, begin? It seems overwhelming, well, I guess. Well, I, I, th there are a couple of constitutional problems, but by and large, the Constitution is a very good document. The, the one really serious flaw in the Constitution is our founders didn't think about how much farther, harder it would be to, to amend or repeal a law than it is to pass it in the first place. Because as soon as a law is passed, it gets surrounded by a special interest group, and nobody wants to incur their wrath. Sure. So I'll give one example. The, there's not one regulatory program that isn't obsolete in some way. 
because just because life choices have unintended consequences, not because the goal is bad. So you take a really good law like special ed. We needed special ed laws because we were locking kids up in these horrible places. It was passed 40 years ago, but it was passed in a certain way, had a lot of bureaucracy with it. It has morphed into this bureaucratic monster that now consumes over 25% of the total K-12 budget in America. There's no money for gifted children, almost no money for early education. Is that the right balance? Nobody's even asking the question because it's too hard to pass a law. Nancy Pelosi was on The Daily Show earlier this uh, uh, year. By the way, my children now respect me because I have been on The Daily Show. Um, I'm, the, actually, um, I'm actually going to quote something the, uh, you said on The Daily the, Show. Um, but, but Nancy Pelosi with The Daily Show and Stewart said, well, uh, you know, but wouldn't it be a little bit better if government actually worked? And she said, oh, no, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is just to pass the laws. Oh, my. You, you know, you say, well, whose responsibility is it then? Um, the main problem here, though, is not a constitutional problem. It's a combination of a cultural and a philosophical problem, which is that we no longer honor the fact that humans have to take responsibility to make anything happen, including enforcing laws and everything else. That you can't create a legal system of hundreds of millions of words that's better than human beings. If you would accept the idea of human responsibility and accountability, you could radically simplify law and the goals and principles, literally getting rid of 98% of the words of law. That's what Australia's done and some other countries in various areas. And they work much better because people actually wake up in the morning, they can roll up their sleeves and try to do the right thing instead of just following the rule book. But do you think, I mean, I'm wondering why it's so easy to pass the buck, why we don't take responsibility. I mean, this is, this is really a, a core, at the center of, yeah. of what you have been talking about, responsibility and, um, and accountability. And I'm wondering, we, has our culture <laughs> changed? Are we, do we not uh, want to be accountable for anything? Well, first I mean, of do all, we have, <laughs> is it easy to sort of say, hey, I don't know? Yeah, you know, I bet most of the people in this room believe their job when they wake up in the morning is to take responsibility to do what's needed for their families and their jobs and such. But Washington has become its own culture. I have a section in the book entitled Washington as a deviant subculture. I don't mean it as a joke. Its values have nothing to do. And this system is perfect for people in Washington. Who's responsible for not balancing the budget? I don't know. Nobody. Right. Who's responsible for not rebuilding the infrastructure? Nobody. They just point fingers at each other. Who's responsible for anything? Nobody. It's the rule of nobody. And so they can never get in trouble. They make a lot of money. They have a lot of power. And all they do is point fingers at each other. It's a, it's, it's, uh, it, this change is going to be a big change, and it's going to have to come from the outside, not from inside. And is it, it's the individuals, it's the citizen who sort of says, I've had it, and then rallies together to, I mean, how do you make for change in a government that is so mired in their own, I mean, th well, they're mired in their own sort of idea of, as Pelosi said, I mean, it's, we pass laws. Right. We're not accountable for any, we're not making government, we're not making change, we're passing laws. Right. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, the way change has always happened in this country, and it happens every 30 or 40 years, is that 
basically, the, the public gets really angry. Generally, they take to the streets. In the 1960s, people took to the streets. You know, but anti-war, civil rights, pollution, Earth Day, all those things, people took to the streets. 1930s, people were in the streets. They were starving. The progressive era, maybe not so much, but there was a, people were scandalized by the abuses of, the, of rapacious corporations with child labor and such. Um, the Civil War, you know, another 30 or 40 years before that, we had a huge war. So uh, each one of those marked a big change in the way our society works. The, the difficulty of the predicament we're in now is the villain is not that party or that party. I mean, I, would, I hate them both. The villain is this blob. Right, it's this right. invisible thing that has us all stuck in tar all day long and says we can't do something for no good reason. Because it says we can't do, we can't pull the tree out of the creek. It's ridiculous. Where, I'm curious what country you feel is well run. Oh. I mean, I mean outside of this country, I mean, where, where do things seem to be more streamlined? Where do they seem to, is it Scandinavia? I mean, we're we talking Sweden, well, are we, you know? Well, first of all, every country, law is inextricably tied to its culture. So you can't just import one country's law to another country. Sure, it just sure. never works that way. And America, there's still a lot of great things about the American culture. I mean, the legal system is completely horrible, but people, good schools, there are studies of this. The principals and the teachers, they just ignore all the rules. Right, right, Literally, right. they just ignore the rules. That's how good schools work, period. It's been studied time after time. Um, uh, Australia um, and New Zealand have both really streamlined their regulatory codes. Australia got rid of 1,000 rules for nursing homes a couple of decades ago, replaced them with 31 general principles. Have a home-like setting, respect the dignity of the residents, serve nutritious meals. The experts scoffed, said these people are going to get away with murder. Within a year, all the nursing homes were twice as good, and they've improved ever since. True, because yeah. people started going to work, not with their noses in the rule books, but saying, oh, Mrs. Smith doesn't like her meals now, let's just make an exception. Uh, you know, not following the rules. The regulators didn't give up their power. They could still go in and close the uh, home down if it wasn't any good. But instead of going in and giving tickets for failure to comply with paperwork, which is what happens today, they go in and say, you know, we think you should improve the food a little bit here. It's just people complain it really ought to be better. I'm going to come back next month and see how you're doing. It's a, it's a positive form of regulatory oversight. And for most human activities, schools, nursing homes, daycare centers, that's a much better way of doing it than just going through a checklist. And I mean, there are these, the codes in America are crazy. How many blocks a daycare center has to have, whether they're in the main traffic area. I mean, it's literally, it's a form of mental illness. You know, all this, all this uh, I mean, do law. you, it's interesting that we don't look at our sort of forefathers and, and that, that Washington doesn't, because you quote James Madison, and I mean, it's what you've been saying here, that laws should not be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood. And, and that's what's happened. Yeah. And yet we're, you know, is it that we, when you said schools, when they do not look at the rules anymore, is it that local government is better than federal government when it takes because it can it can take more responsibility onto itself than in a larger federal system right. which is so chaotic at this point and there are too many rules i mean is it better that we take our cities back that that there are less overriding federal rules i guess i'm you know trying to 
sort of take the string and unwind right, it. And right, right. Um, uh, local governments can be better than the federal government because the federal government, the problem is it's too far removed from real people. The people write regulations. Uh, I mean, at this point, actually, America is really run by dead people. It's all these people who wrote regulations and laws decades ago, and they just piled up. It's like central planning, except the planners are dead. Um, they're really disconnected, whereas people in a town or community sure. actually see the person in front of them. And so they're much more prone to make exceptions or just ignore the rules. That doesn't mean that local government's perfect either. What's needed is to go back to what our founders thought they were creating in our republic, which is a system in which laws set go in which laws like a corral of goals and principles, but not telling people how to do everything. Sure. That's not freedom. That's law replacing freedom. Mm -hmm. So law is a corral that prevents misconduct and sets standards. But within that corral, everyone should be free to take responsibility and then be accountable and various mechanisms if they fail in that responsibility. We need to go back to that idea. Mm -hmm. It's a radically simplified model of law. It happens, it, it's called a recodification. It's happened in history a number of times. Um, we did it with commercial law in America in the 50s with the Uniform Commercial Code. Napoleon famously did it. It's still the basis of law for half the civilized world. Um, Justinian in ancient times did it. So it happens periodically and every time you've simplified the law and made it coherent to people so people could actually act again. It's been like replacing a muddy road with a paved highway. It's just the, the, the amount of energy that's let go when teachers and principals feel they can actually do what they think is right. And when people can get, get up in the morning and actually start a business without spending a year going to 11 different agencies, which is what's required to start a restaurant oh, in New yeah. York, you know, and it, it's, you simplify law, create one-stop shops for people to go to government so they can actually interact with government in a real way. It's, and they're not exhausted by yeah, the they're time not they exhausted. start governing. It's incredibly right. empowering. It's incredibly liberating. And it's not getting rid of government. Sure. It's not what the conservatives say at all. It's the opposite. It's saying give government officials more leeway. Let them use their common sense and let's just make sure it's transparent so they can be held accountable. Before we end this, because we're in the library, I have to ask you about what you're reading. Oh, gosh. We're um, going to move from politics. Yeah, you know, Do you I, escape I, politics and yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, yeah, policy yeah. and read a lot of fiction? I, I don't read a lot of <laughs> fiction, but I love the fiction I read. I love, I, I, love, uh, I love Tolstoy. I mean, you can't not, you know, I love Henry James. Which um, ones? Oh, Sorry, the, the Americans, Washington Square. I mean, you know, it's just so human. It makes you, you know, all the human stuff that we've kind of you've taken away. I actually really love, uh, a, there were all these people who were really smart in the 20th century who wrote about this problem and nobody listened. Isaiah Berlin, Hannah Arendt, Huxley, oh, Orwell. I, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, these people, and you read their, their writing, they're very readable. And you say, oh my God, that's right. Look at what we're doing wrong. And you know, when you go back and remind yourself that we, we kept being warned through the 30s and 40s and 50s that we were that this doing is the this. Direction, so I, yeah. So I do that, and um, the, there's the new, uh, see what I'm reading, it's fun. I'm doing a lot of purpose reading. Uh, I read a really great book recently called, I think it's Under a Full Sea, Chang Ray Lee's book. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah the new one. The, yeah. the, 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 new, yeah. the, the new Chang Ray Lee book, it's a dystopic novel 
about the future when order breaks down, and it is incredibly powerful and vivid and a, a little too realistic. Yeah, a little uh, too prophetic. Yeah, it's really, if you really want to get on board with me, read that book <laughs> and then sign up you know, at, at, at commongood.org. I, uh, we're going to take about three or four questions from the audience, um, and I'm going to give over my microphone and this young man in the orange reddish t-shirt. Uh, do you think that part of the problem that we have with regulation is industry capture or the notice and comment period that allows some of our more effective um, agencies to be weighed down by special interest groups as well as lobbyists? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, industry capture, that's the idea that, that the regulators are kind of doing what industry wants, uh, sort of thing, happens all the time, but there's also special interest capture on the other side. I mean, there's, you know, the capture can work both ways. Um, but they're all deal, and so the Volcker Rule, 950 pages, that was all written by business lobbyists. Because they were trying to guarantee that the one little exception they were trying to allow their clients to do wouldn't be covered by the 950 pages. So they write all these words that become this labyrinth, and only they see the holes. That's what's going on. It's just, in, it's just like inside game. It's almost completely divorced from public policy, completely divorced from the idea of right and wrong. And that's the reason why you ought to have simpler laws that actually have to be enforced by a person who's sitting there. And that person will vary depending on whether they're Republican or Democrat. Great, democracy is important again. You know, but, but right now when it's all this little scribe written stuff, it's, it's lobbyists uh, just making the jungle ever thicker. How are Hi. you? Hey, nice to see you. Nice to see you. So we were on a community board together many years ago. Many years ago, and I still come to listen to hear what you say, Philip. I learned a lot then and, and do now. So I learned everything I learned from you. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. Um, Philip, um, what is the solution from the top down, the bottom up? Do we need, um, I've been re read about uh, Lyndon Johnson recently and thought, Maybe we need another Lyndon Johnson, not because he was a Democrat, right. but because he imposed his vision. He created a focus, and that's what we needed. Or do we take to the streets? Uh, I don't know that I like that one, but, but what's, what's your assessment? Uh, well, you know, I talk about this in the book. There's actually a way big change happens. It never happens with small ball. It's always big stuff. But the first step, we're not even there yet is we, we need a new narrative. We need a vision that we're, we're aspiring to. And I think the vision is one of sh human responsibility, kill the blob, you know, put humans in charge again. And you know, let's radically simplify, let us live our lives, let us run our schools, let us do everything. So I, I don't know the exact form of words, but we need a vision the same way the civil rights movement and the environmental movement and all these other movements had a, had a vision. Once you have a vision, you have a chance of getting public leaders. But, but most political leaders are lagging indicators. They follow the movement, not the other way around. There are a couple of people who are running for president who are actually citing this new book, which I think is political suicide. But in any event, I guess they're not going to win. 
But in any event, I mean, Jeb Bush is one of them. And, and frankly, Jeb's a great guy because he will take on, on certain issues, his own party, which real leaders should do, in my view. Um, so leadership can make a difference, but ultimately we're going to need to create a new public narrative. And the truth is nothing I'm talking about is part of the public narrative. All the smart academics, they say, let's go make these regulations work better, and they get, get a pair of shears and they wander into the Amazon jungle, you know, and they clip some branches, which doesn't do anything. So um, uh, the, the bad news and the good news is that gravity's on our side. <laughs> you know, this system is getting worse. It's going to become less affordable, more frustrating. It's going to re result in greater failure year after year, because it's just growing. So, you know, my self-appointed role, commongood.org, if you want to sign up, it's free, is to, and I've got people like Bill Bradley and Al Simpson and Tom Kane, and, you know, lots of public leaders are on my board who are supporting what I'm doing. So it's, you know, it's bipartisan or nonpartisan. Um, uh, but you start talking about it first, then you get people angry and excited, then you get political champions, and then, then you get a crisis, and then maybe then you get change. Uh, you suggested replacing uh, the heavy burden of regulation with a reasonableness standard, but isn't the word reasonable the most litigated word in the English language, and would that really solve the problem? Um, well, this, uh, uh, this is someone I went to high school with. This, um, he was difficult then, and he's difficult now. The, and law school, that's right. Um, um, well, I don't exactly say everything should be replaced by a reasonable standard, but, but in general, it's to set goals and such that people can argue over. Yes, people will argue over reasonableness, and they go to court and do it just as they do with the Constitution. But when people argue over reasonableness, at least they're arguing over right and wrong. Today what happens, people still argue, this doesn't, there's no such thing as clear law, that's a myth. They're arguing over what the meaning of language is in section 256B34C. That has nothing to do with right and wrong. It's just parsing language in these millions of words of law. So it's far better to have a fight over whether the nursing home is serving nutritious meals than whether then, I'm not exaggerating here, what the weight of the peas are on the plate. There are regulations about that. So, or whether the food is stored not less than 15 centimeters above the floor, or, you know, I mean, literally these rules, these rules thousands of rules. So, so it doesn't eliminate legal argument, but it, it, it puts it back toward the goal of the regulation. And then both people are, are at risk, and hopefully things get resolved, you know, uh, there's more room for compromise when you're not just arguing over language. Is there one more question in the audience? No? Okay. Oh, there is. I'm, let's take one more and then. The latest panic and controversy on college campuses involves uh, sexual assault with more rules coming about, out, right. about that in California with uh, informed consent, uh, assent, signing off at every stage. What's your take on that situation? Are we heading to a wonderful era of harmony on campus. Now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that's obviously a, a touchy subject, as it were. Um, um, 
in another book, I, I, I write about sexual uh, uh, accusations of sexual misconduct by teachers. Um, I think because it's so easy to make allegations about sex and, and so hard to disprove this, that, that what's needed, and maybe it differs, it probably differs in different situations, but you have to have, if you want to promote a free society, a, a rule of law that doesn't allow people to make claims or to get in trouble unless there's pretty credible evidence of some kind of sexual misconduct. And, um, and I haven't applied that to the idea of dating, but it, you don't have to use your imagination too much to make the distinction between grabbing somebody you don't know and you know and doing something that's, that they ought to be put in jail for life for, and and the and the shades of gray that go back toward people getting drunk and right. you know going to a room. I don't think people's lives should be ruined in the latter category, and I don't believe you can have codes. You know, a consent form. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's like. Where is the file cabinet in heaven that contains all the consent forms we sign in schools and in hospitals? No one ever reads. Do you read the consent forms? Do you read the consent form when you sign up for a new app? Do you, I mean, so consent forms are just process without substance. Law ought to focus, in my view, ought to focus generally on substance, including in this area, and we ought to be I think more judgmental of people who have bad reputations and do bad things to the opposite sex, but not leave it to be an open field that any angry person can ruin another person's life. I mean, yeah, and those are difficult lines to draw sometimes, but you have to honor both sides of that equation. You can't just say the accuser has rights and, you know, and the accused doesn't. doesn't exactly. Anyway, so, and so, but you're getting into an area of law that is, in fact, hard. There are many areas of law, rebuilding infrastructure, maintaining order in a classroom, putting an arm around a crying child. That shouldn't be hard. You know, there are a lot of things about our society that are really easy to fix if we just let humans be humans again. And, and that's a lot of what this, you know, what this book is about. And I think we've got a great culture in America, and I have, no, I have every confidence that we can and probably will fix this. I'm not sure how, what the path is, but nothing's going to work. Nothing ever worked in the history of mankind except by humans taking responsibility to make it work. Nothing ever happened affirmatively by somebody following a rule, ever. I mean, Edison, I'll end with Edison. We ain't got no rules around here. We're trying to get something done. You know, <laughs> and so that idea has to really you know, be part of what it means to live in a free society. It's that law is there to protect us on the outside, but we're free day, all day long to do our best with it. Thank you again Thank for you. coming. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org and subscribe on iTunes to never miss an episode.